This podcast is a part of the Carbon Almanac Network of Podcasts. Welcome to the Carbon Connection Podcast. It's not too late to change the conversation about climate change from doom and gloom to a conversation about possibility. This podcast is a curated selection of episodes that we just had to share with you. The Carbon Connection is about the many dimensions of climate change and the conversations people are having across the globe. It's about hope, community, advocacy, science, and changing our future. How can adults talk about climate change with children? This question is at the heart of this conversation between psychotherapist Carolyn Hickman and host Verity Sharp. Carolyn Hickman is a climate psychologist and teaching fellow at the University of Bath in England. In this thoughtful conversation, Hickman offers guidance to parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, teachers, and all adults interacting with children. Hickman shares that she sees anger over the climate emergency expressed more than eco-anxiety and speaks about supporting children instead of just talking to them. She also shares practical solutions and what she learned from her conversation with a six-year-old child when she asked the child how she wants adults to talk to her about serious topics. We hope you enjoyed the episode, Talking with Children About Climate Change. Hello and welcome again to Climate Crisis Conversations, Catastrophe or Transformation. It's a podcast hosted by the Climate Psychology Alliance. And this is the place where, as we live through this momentous age, increasingly defined by climate chaos, we're talking about how we're feeling. My name's Verity Sharp. I'm a radio broadcaster. And in this episode, I'm joined by climate psychologist Caroline Hickman, to tackle the question of how we talk to children about climate change. Um, This is a question that's close to my heart, not least because I'm a parent. But even if I wasn't, it is, of course, to all children that this very precarious future belongs. My son is 10. We talk about environmental issues quite a lot in our daily lives. We try and live as sustainably as we can. We're recycling. We're trying not to buy plastic, growing our own food. So the subject comes up a lot, but the the true enormity of the situation doesn't come up. And I often wonder how far is it appropriate to make him aware at his age exactly where we are in this narrative. So, Caroline, hello. How do we talk to children about climate change? It's a huge question, isn't it? And, you know, I think it's really important that we're starting with this question and with children because they are going to be bearing a lot of the emotional cost on behalf of humanity about what we've failed to do up to this point and should be helping us shape the direction of where we need to go now in the future. Barack Obama in 2015 said... Our children in the future are going to be asking us, you know, to look back and ask, did we do all that we could 
to do what was necessary to deal with this. Mm. And I think for myself, that's at the centre of, you know, I keep asking myself on a weekly basis, especially when I'm scared or if I'm worried or if I'm having to take on something that I don't feel competent at doing, uh, I just say, well, you know, this is all I should be doing. This is motivating me to do more. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have children yourself? I don't. I don't have birth children of my own. I have lots of children in my life. I have nieces, nephews. I have friends' children. There are lots of students. And as a psychotherapist, I do a lot of work with children who've been traumatised and a lot of work with children and families and previously as a social worker. So I don't have my own birth children, no. Um, but I have a lot of sense of myself extending that care and mothering energy towards a lot of children, but also towards parents who are having to cope with this mm -hmm. in thinking about their own children. So in that sense, I think I can bring something to the discussion. Mm. Uh, I've got lots of nurturing energy, but most of it gets directed to my adorable Labradoodle Murphy. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Mm. yeah. So, I mean, as, as I say, I've got a, a 10-year-old and yeah. it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because he is very aware, mm. I think, of the, this changing climate, but... Mm. You know, is it appropriate to be telling him um, some of the catastrophic, really, uh, scenarios that are being laid out at the moment? It's it's such a great question. It's a really important question. Before we get to that question, I understand that we need to get to some practical things and we need to th answer that question. But before we get there, can we think for a minute about who children are to us, mm -hmm. who they represent, and the way that our society kind of conceptualises children in childhood? Because I think that will help us understand how we can get there. Yeah. Because there is not going to be a single answer. The, it depends on the child is going to be the simple answer. So, but we have to think about children before we can start thinking about how to talk to actual children. Does that make sense? Yeah. So we need to think, you know, a lot of the time in Western society in particular, we construct children as innocents. So that's behind that sort of dilemma. And as parents, I see parents kind of sitting there like yourself thinking, how much should I tell him? And feeling really, really responsible as though that decision is yours alone. So I want to move us towards thinking about how do we work with children to engage with this climate crisis, to engage with the ecological crisis, that it's not just parents' problem alone. Children themselves are taking action on this. Um, and so I think we need to be working with them. We need to be talking with them. And I think this gives us, if I don't want to put too positive a spin on it, but I do think this gives us an, a unique opportunity to join together with children in new ways uh, and work alongside them. You know, I think at the very least, parents should be out there supporting their children on the school strikes, ideally wearing animal onesies, you know, <laughs> and looking ridiculous. We need to be supporting them in a range of ways to get their voices heard. Um, over history, we have a tendency to disbelieve children, to patronise children, to marginalise children. We, you know, they, they, their voice doesn't get legitimacy until they reach 18 and they get the vote, for example. If you look at some of the awful things that have been said about Greta Thunberg, you know, that the, she's been patronised, she's been put down. There's been you know, messages in the newspapers. Yes, Greta, I thought I knew everything when I was 16 as well. They're all ways of dismissing the importance of her message. Um, but they're deeply patronising. And 
uh, cruel mm. put downs mm. that people are, and she's you know thankfully fairly sort of uh, robust I think and secure it may wound her I don't know but that's ways we silence children yeah so if children speak out they know that if they say something that adults or the powerful world doesn't like that's the reaction they'll get so that will silence some children and it will make children afraid of being belittled and humiliated. It, people can use shame to silence children, all of those things. So we have to kind of keep in mind that children in speaking out and then thinking about how we speak to children, children are very sensitive to this. They know that that's the sort of thing that they can invite as a social reaction from wider society. Partly, I think, because adults themselves are pretty scared. They don't quite know the answers. I think adults and parents are often pretty embarrassed about the situation we're in. Right. I think yeah. they're feeling probably a little guilty. Guilty. Yeah. yeah, guilty, ashamed, out of their depth. You know, if your child comes to you and says, how do I deal with feeling anxious about my exams at school? Mm-hmm. You've got something you can draw on. You've got your own experience of being anxious about exams at school to help you think about how to help your child. But I'm imagining, as a parent, you're only just coming to terms with how to cope with your own feelings about the climate emergency right. and the ecological crisis. Yeah. yeah. And I'm imagining that you're just starting to feel your own way forwards with that. Yeah. So to have your child then ask you how to cope with this is going to bring up a whole mix of feelings for you, part of which will be, I don't know, you know, but you can't say that to your child, can you? Because you've got to have a response that... Yeah looks after your child. I'm not getting the sense from, from our son anyway that there is anxiety there, actually, because there's a sense that this is their reality. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, maybe as uh, older people with a history of, you know, uh, you know, having spent many years living so comfortably and so unaware, mm. that obviously an- anxiety is coming in, in spades now. But actually, as a child, if you've only been on this planet for 10 years, yeah, you know... And some of that may be because he doesn't fully understand. Um, Some of it may be because he sees things very clearly. And certainly the children that I've been doing the research with, they're not expressing anxiety to me. They're expressing anger, though, and frustration. They've got other strong feelings around this. They want adults to do something about the situation they're in. They have this sense of powerlessness and frustration with adults. But no, you're absolutely right. They're not really talking about anxiety, Um, mostly anger. And I think some of that anger could get directed towards adults increasingly soon if we don't start to engage children in these discussions together. We're already seeing kids, you know, uh, well, taking adults to court Aren't they in the States for Are they? the effects of climate change? Yeah. Are yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this Fantastic. A, mm. Yeah. Which is going to get interesting. <laughs> it is going to get interesting. And I, I, I mean, part of me says good for them. Fantastic. You know, speak out and be outrageous and take those risks. And part of me says, but stay in relationship with us. Exactly. Because, um, you know, a lot of people, uh, some people have been very aware of the looming ecological crisis and, you know, climate emergency for decades. Some people have been very aware, a lot of activists, a lot of scientists, a lot of psychologists, we've known. 
But a lot of people haven't. The vast majority haven't. So I think the vast majority have been living uh, with this kind of hope that something would get sorted out soon, sooner or later. You know, something else would be done. Now, you could say that that's a kind of childlike hope or belief in others to rescue us. But I think if we direct too much anger and frustration at those people, then we will alienate them and we will terrify them. And we need to take them with us. They need to be part of that discussion with children. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe maybe a lot of people have been a little bit asleep. And the recent activist work of Extinction Rebellion and the David Attenborough documentary is doing a phenomenal job of waking people up. So... Uh, my husband went up to the Extinction Rebellion, yeah. um, one of the the, the marches, yeah. and we chose, uh, partly from a practical point of view, not to take our son yeah. um, or t- to that. And on the David Attenborough, I've had uh, friends of mine who sat down and watched it with their children, and actually at, at the same age, so we're, we're, t- we're talking nine, ten-year-olds, actually eight and ten these kids were. And, and I, actually, I thought, Whoa! I, I it didn't occur to me to sit down and watch that with with my mm. son, and I'm actually really pleased I didn't because mm. oh, it it devastated me. So it's interesting, mm. isn't it? Um, mm. Maybe we need some programs to be made that are more um, tolerable for children, so it gives those messages a, in a, a sort of more easily digestible mm. way, mm. Mm. which is not so traumatizing. I mean, that documentary was had an impact. You know, I was devastated. You know, the image of the orangutan. Yeah. Has, you know, I still want to cry uh, when I absolutely. just Absolutely. I can't, think... I can't. I don't want to think about it. No, no, no. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. No, no. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> and that, but that's what, exactly what happens, isn't yeah. it? You know, we yeah. go near that and we touch our own feelings. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you want to protect your child from that. Yeah. I also know uh, parents who've sat down and watched that documentary with their children. Did they? Okay, they did. so they chose to do that. They chose to mm-hmm. do that. And I've also asked some of those children whether that was a good thing afterwards. And some of the the children have said yes. They thought it was a good thing because it gave them information. But I could see that it was also a struggle for them to fully take on board all of that information. So I think they were editing and they were filtering, maybe not all at once. So maybe watch chunks of that documentary. Or maybe we need to make a documentary which is more suited for younger children. I remember the Iceland... Did you watch that? The Iceland made an advert when they uh, made a pledge to take palm oil out of all their products. And they made a cartoon of the orangutan kind of uh, running riot in a little girl's bedroom. And then she was trying to get rid of it uh, and say, go back to your forest and, and, you know, this... Orangutan turns around and says, "Okay, I will go, but let me just tell you why I can't go. Uh, and I'm running right in your bedroom because, you know, humans are running right in, in the uh, the forest. And it was, and and I did share that mm. with my son, and and he, you know, that that exactly right. It was just pitched exactly right. Could as, he as a hear the message in mm. that? So totally, he yeah, could. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, he's very aware of, of palm oil and all those sorts of things. So I think you're right. I think the media, you know, does have a, have a role to play. But it does bring me, Caroline, to this. Uh, frustration Mm. I have that he's at primary school and they don't get taught any of it and I don't think it really gets taught in secondary either you know climate change isn't there no Um, and it's something that I'm extremely angry about in my own upbringing Mm. why weren't we taught I was sitting around learning about oxbow lakes and Mm. all the rest of it nobody ever mentioned 
this was happening. No, no, I know. And one of my favourite books at the moment that I'm reading was written in 1991, saying you've got to act, you've got to do something now. Um, it's the Confessions of an Eco-Warrior. And he says, you know, the time is now, it's urgent. And that was 1991. Mm. And I, I asked a group the other day, Women in Sustainability, when did they think these statements were written? And some of them were suggesting they were written in the 1960s. And they, they were right. Mm. They could have been written in the 1960s. Mm. So mm. to some extent, there's been a mixture of disinformation and preventing the wider public from getting access to this. Um, maybe there's been a kind of mass infantilization of us, keeping the truth from us because of the drive towards economic development. Right. It's, yeah. This is a political... We can't answer those questions without looking politically and economically at the way the world has been driven towards develop. Um, it would be very inconvenient, wouldn't it? And that's what Al Gore says, the inconvenient truth. It would be very inconvenient to then start to deal with those dilemmas earlier because it would have blocked or slowed down some of that capitalist expansion. Mm. So I can only suggest that that's part of the reason we weren't told generally. So what can so we do at, now? But we're at the point now to, where we yeah. have no choice, and that's what's made it yeah. different, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Is you know, humans often wait until they have no choice about making change, and then when you're at the point where you have no choice, then they start to take action, and that's the kind of point that we're at I think where mm. we have no choice now we can't take absorb that message with one ear and then continue to turn a blind eye and kind of just carry on as before we have no choice now so yeah so you're asking me what can we actually do yeah <laughs> you got practical solutions well I think absolutely crucial behind this is to start to give children messages and you can do this in small easily uh, tolerable ways to teach them about having a need-focused life. Judith Anderson coined this idea. I was talking with her about having a need-focused life rather than a want-focused life. So it's what do we need rather than what do we want. And those are the sorts of decisions we need to start to be moving towards. Because you might want plastic dinosaurs, but mm. you need them. Mm -hmm. And what's the consequence of having hundreds of plastic dinosaurs, which are throwaway, cheap objects... Show the child what happens to that plastic. Show them that it never degrades, it never goes away. These crisp packets which have arrived on beaches, you know, from 30, 40 years ago. If we show the child that and then give them choices, they shouldn't be taking responsibility about how to clean up this mess we've made, but they can make significant choices. If children exercise their consumer power about no longer buying cheap, throwaway plastic toys it would change the way that we engage with consumerism around children mm. overnight, mm. quite honestly. So, you know, so move them towards that sort of thing. And you can put that into everyday conversation in your home. And I think what happens a lot of the time uh, when we're around children is we have these conversations in our heads, but we don't share them with the child. So have you talked with your child about which milk you buy? And why you choose to buy the milk that you buy. So has that been a conversation you've had in your home? For us, it has. Yeah, it yeah. has. Yeah. So he's heard your conversation about... Yeah, yeah. So we, so we, we hardly have any, uh, you know, um, cow's milk anymore. So, and, and his choice is, sure. is, is rice milk. Whether that's based on um, 
the state of the planet or just personal taste. I don't know, but it probably is, yes, because we do we do have these sorts of... And the, coming to the toys thing, mm. you know, definitely... Uh, I think I probably just grumble quite a lot, you know, it was another plastic <laughs> thing. And... Um, and he is very aware of the, how plastic doesn't uh, break down. But I still feel like a killjoy because it's just the way childhood is now, aren't they? They're, they're almost saturated with toys. You know, some some bedrooms are just insane with the amount of stuff. Mm, I know. Whereas only a couple of generations ago, you know, to go out and just play with your wooden car that your, your grandpa made you was enough and you just you know and it's it's so but, complicated but that whole thing that, to navigate yeah sure but what's complicated there is your feelings not his feelings so it's your fear of being a killjoy that might prevent you from fully engaging with that dilemma with him and if you shared that dilemma with him and said i don't want to spoil things for you but in the short term, maybe we've got to actually make these short-term decisions in order to get something better in the long term. Mm. Does that make sense? My, I was talking with a friend of mine about this, and she said, for her, what gets her completely incensed is party goodie bags, right? which are absolutely full of rubbish. Mm. But there's a cultural tradition of you've got to produce them. And I said to her, well, what would happen if you didn't? What would happen if you said... No, I'm not going to do that. She said, well, you know, the other children may not understand and they, they may get ostracised from their peer group. And and then she said there was a whole debate amongst her and her friends because one woman said, we don't want sweets in those goodie bags. <laughs> right? Because we don't want the sugar in there. But plastic is better than sugar. And then for my friend Emma, it was like, no, actually, sugar is better than plastic. Because in the short term, having a few sweets is not so damaging. But in the long term, the plastic is more damaging. And it's about being able to kind of have those discussions with yourself and your friends and then navigate a way through. But it would be helpful if your group of friends could all make that change at the same time. Mm. Because otherwise your individual child will feel ostracised. They're the one who's not allowed plastic. And that could get mean in playgrounds. I understand that. Schools, I think, are starting to, back to the point you made about schools, I think they're slowly starting to wake up. I've had some really good responses from schools when I've offered to go in and talk to the children. We did a fantastic research project a few years ago with a, a group of primary school children where we grew a, a whale on their school playing field with two and a half thousand crocus bulbs. Never doing that again. Took a long time to plant those. <laughs> to talk with children. Uh, this was at uh, Calern Primary School. Um, uh, to talk to children about the impact of climate change on whales and how if we protect whales, that will help uh, avoid some of the worst uh, climate change because whales suck 400,000 tonnes from carbon per year out of the air. I can also tell you wonderful things. I love working with children like um, how much a baby humpback whale pees every day, <laughs> which I can answer. The It, it is a bathful. Yeah. <laughs> I love it because they ask you these questions and I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to go <laughs> home and find out though because they drink a bathful of milk every day. Wow. So we sketched out using organic paint this whale on the school playing field. We measured it out with the children and we planted the bulbs and we talked to them about whales and we got them drawing whales and we talked about the impact of climate change on whales and warming oceans and krill and how this would, you know, impact on whales in the long term. This was in Wiltshire. Um, and then the whale grew 
this whale grew on the school playing field and just emerged sort of over a few months later. What was so, so interesting was before these little bulbs appeared above the ground, the children wanted to protect the whale and they put a circle of chairs around where the whale was going to grow and they stopped their parents walking across it. And they had an understanding about the importance in relationally of protecting the whale and that that in turn would help them. So we built understanding of climate change and the climate crisis and the ecological crisis with children Mm. through talking about things they could understand and relate to, which is the natural world, through whales, through wolves, through talking to them about the impact of climate change on their pets and on their oak trees. So we used local as well as global examples, but from the natural world. Uh, David Attenborough says uh, children use nature and animals as a gymnasium for their own emotions. So they learn about emotional relatability through a relationship with animals, with pets. Um, so that's what we use to, as a way in, as a, a gateway to talk about this. So mm-hmm. sounds to me like uh, a brilliant idea would be that every primary school and probably secondary, yeah, secondary mm. school as well, um, had regular visits at this point in time from a climate psychologist because, you know, we can't let the teachers Mm. or, or, you know, kind of let them feel that they are responsible for taking this on as well as everything else that they do. I mean, you know, how can we encourage our schools to do that, to, 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 to get somebody like yourself to come in? How does that actually practically work? What do we have to do? I think it's a really good idea and let's send this podcast out to all the schools and say, well, people from the Climate Psychology Alliance would be more than happy to come out and talk to your schools. We can go into school assemblies. We can run research projects like I've just been describing, but that does take longer. But and, I think, and it takes funds? Um, it took a little bit of funds. We got some funding from the University of Bath, which was great. But I think we can also, we've also, a group of us from the university have been going out to do talks in schools. We've taken a scientist and we've taken myself and we've t- given both talks at the same time. So we've talked about climate science and climate psychology. So we've given them the facts and given them Mm. the psychology and how they're going to feel. And I think that really helps engage children because we shouldn't just be talking to them about how they feel. We need to give them the facts. We need to give them evidence that they can absorb and that they can make sense of at the same time as talking to them about how they feel. So bringing that back to parents, it might be a bit much to just go straight to the climate crisis, but we could, as parents, parents and adults talk to children about the way climate change would impact on animals first and then bring it to think about how is climate change going to impact on you Mm. and me does Mm. that make sense Mm. because children know about climate change in polar bears it's an iconic image it's used everywhere they can talk about that and that introduces them to some of the more complex feelings that they're going to be feeling And then you can give them the message at the same time of how do you feel about what's happening to polar bears? Um, It's sad, isn't it? And it might make you upset and it might make you feel grief stricken or I would not use the word stricken, but yeah, you might feel grief. It might make you feel a bit angry. It might make you feel a bit bad. And it's okay to have these feelings. So you can have that way of introducing them to that range of emotional feelings. 
Um, I think telling stories works really well. So you talked about the advertisement. There's some really nice books coming out. And Indigenous people have got lots of stories about right. how to yeah. deal with crisis in the world, how to deal with change in the world. So I think there's sorts of resources out there that we could go to. I think that's the, the, the future for podcasts. Yeah, isn't um, it just? And I, websites even. You oh, know. for definite, yeah. Yeah resources yeah, for, for, for how to talk to children about climate change or yeah I think we can get some of those resources on the CPA website yeah. um, and we've also got a very active Google group and there's lots of parents there been talking about how should we talk to our children and they're talking about their own children and they're talking about children in their practice we had a fantastic discussion recently about whether to take children up to London to see the buckets of blood being spilled on the floor and whether that would be too much for children and what age children we could expose that to or whether you know you also so what came out of that what were people saying it was variable so it depends on the age of the child depends on the individual child certainly a lot of the children I work with have got traumatized histories and for them then I would say no I would not want to take them and see something as awful as that to in a raw state I might talk to them about it so they can start to imagine it before I actually showed them it in reality I think if a child is uh, securely attached in a securely attached family, whether that's birth family or adoptive family or foster family, doesn't matter. So long as they've got those secure attachments and they feel contained and safe and they know that it's safe to talk about these things, then you could edge towards exposing them to those sorts of things. But maybe do it through pictures first. Maybe ask the child, is this too much or is this enough? How would you like us to talk to you about mm, these things? Mm, mm. I think present children with a dilemma mm. as well. You, you asked a child this very question last night, didn't I you? I did, say? yes. I said, <laughs> how? I did. My friend Skyped. I said, I need a six-year-old to ask this. So she Skyped me from Sweden last night with her child, um, who, who knows me? So this wasn't, you're going to Skype a strange woman and talk about this, you know, so she wasn't going to scare her child. So there was lots of, hello, how are you? And then I showed her Murphy. So we had lots of kind of little chats. That's before. the dog. That's way. my dog, yes. Um, my much-loved Labradoodle. So Murphy got involved. So we had a little chats about these things. But she's also been interviewed by me for my research in the past. So she's kind of... conditioned. She's, she's, she's used to having to these conversations. And also her mum is involved uh, as a chemical engineer in a group I'm working with at the university. So they have a lot of those conversations. So this wasn't too scary for her. That was the plan anyway. So I said to her, how do you want us to talk to you about difficult things? And she said, well, she said, I do and I don't. And I thought, well, actually, that's a genius response to actually remember with children. They both need to be exposed to this and protected from it at the same time. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, we spoke of the dilemma. We spoke about not doing too much too soon. We spoke about using stories. She said she doesn't want to be overprotected because then that's lying to her and it's treating her like a baby and she's not a baby. So she doesn't want to be treated like a baby. She doesn't want to be overprotected. But she said she wants to be able to trust us to give her the information in bite-sized chunks so that she doesn't feel it's her responsibility. Because children can quickly feel it's their responsibility to do something about this situation. And I think we have to be really clear with them that we've created this. It's our responsibility to deal with it. We want to share with them 
how should we be dealing with it? And we want them to inform us about how we should be dealing with us, with this. But and we should ask them about how much they know before we start that conversation. But we shouldn't be expecting them to take responsibility no. for dealing no, with that's it. That's really important. Yeah, is mm. that really is that what you know? But she was very clear. Don't overprotect me. Mm. So I think part of the difficulty that parents have when they start to relate to this is this awful fear that they will hurt their children they will damage their children definitely that's at the root of it yeah for me anyway Mm. they will give them something which is just too much Mm. for them to cope Mm. with but i think there is another way to think about this that if you don't talk to your children you're withholding something from them but if you do talk to your children about something that despite the fact that it's painful and difficult, you are giving them something which helps them grow. And it helps them grow emotionally and it helps them grow psychologically because our children need to grow into dealing with the world that we are creating. True. And so they need the skills and they need the language and they need something from us. If we overprotect, in a way, we're not doing them any favours. We're doing them a disservice, yeah. 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 So there's a way to think about this and the way to think about this, I'm going to talk you through Everybody's just drawing. She's drawing. That's the... the, uh, Okay, so we've got... So we've got three plant pots here. And you've got plant pot number one. So we've got a little seed in each plant pot. And in plant pot number one, we've got just ordinary soft soil. Okay. And in plant pot number three... We've got rocks. Putting in some rocks. Putting in some rocks, drawing them over our little seed. Right. So it's quite hard then for the seed to make it to the surface. Yes. So there's no obstruction between the seed and the surface yep. in number one. Yeah. There's rocks in the way in number three. Yeah. Number one is too little information. So what's going to happen is the seed will grow... And there'll be, it'll collapse. Yeah. It's just, that that stalk is not a resilient shape. It's just straight shape. Just drawn a picture of a flower drooping. Yeah, a droopy flower. <laughs> yeah. Very nicely too, yeah. I have to say. And in number three, where there are rocks, the seed will start to grow, but it'll get distorted and stunted and hurt by that. Mm-hmm. The ideal growing conditions are compost soil with grit, bits of grit in them so i'm drawing in plump pot number two lots of bits of grit so the seed will start to grow and will hit the grit but each time it hits a bit of grit it'll grow round the grit so what you end up with is this very resilient stalk that comes out and it's not straight and it's not too scrunchy either mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you're making the analogy there yeah. but the, your bits of grit are Information, information, stories, mm. exposing them to small things which are manageable, mm-hmm. palatable, tolerable, meaningful to the child. Stories, uh, pictures, animals. And that's a way of making it tolerable that will help the child develop resilience and help them face what's coming and give them the skills mm. and the emotional intelligence that they need in order to face what's coming, because we've got to prepare them for it. But we've got to do that thoughtfully, wisely, kindly and playfully. Yeah. And that's our job. That's a very key word, actually. That's that we our job. Yeah, play, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So that's another podcast, isn't it? How to, <laughs> how to play with painful things. <laughs> do, do, do those plant yeah. pots help? So the idea is, in thinking about that, I would hope to reduce your guilt... 
and your anxiety as a parent take you away from the should I talk to him, shouldn't I talk to him? Because you must talk to him. But you've got to keep that model in mind. Yeah. And that should reduce yeah. your guilt, yeah. but also show you and give you a model in mind of this is the way to talk to him. Not too much, but not too little. And But I'm helping him by introducing painful things to him. Caroline, I think this isn't a huge topic mm. and I think we should come back to it in oh. our podcast series and I think we Love should to. get some children in here um, I agree. to do exactly these things so we can all kind of listen in and, you know, to hear you as a professional psychologist talking to a child I think would be really valuable for people. So um, let's do that. I look forward to it. Mm. it be great. Thank you. That was Caroline Hickman, climate psychologist and teaching fellow at the University of Bath. And I'm Verity Sharp. Climate Crisis Conversations is a podcast series hosted by the Climate Psychology Alliance and produced by Parity Audio. More information in our show notes and do join us again for our next conversation. Until then, take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Carbon Connection, a rebroadcast of the podcast Climate Crisis Conversations. We want to thank the Climate Psychology Alliance for letting us share this episode with you. We also want to thank them for sharing a link to their page of resources dedicated to children and the climate crisis. See the link in the show notes. Thank you for joining us today. To view all of the shows in the Carbon Almanac Podcast Network, including Generation Carbon, our show for kids age 6 through 10, visit thecarbonalmanac.org slash podcasts.